0: Thanks for tuning in to this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I hang out with Kurt Maitland. He is a whiskey writer, spirits judge, and the author of two cocktail books, Drink and the Infused Cocktail Handbook. Kurt is based in New York City, but he's also a prolific traveler and interviewer of top bartenders and distillers, and I'm really excited for you to be a fly on the wall as I grill him about his process and all the learnings he's taken away from his book projects and beyond. But before we do all that, let's give you an opportunity to make yourself a drink. Just in time for Halloween, this episode's featured cocktail is Paint the Town Red. Designed by bartender Umberto Flores and featured in Kurt's book, The Infused Cocktail Handbook, this drink is as refreshing as it is ominous. To make it, you'll need 2 ounces of hibiscus and magnolia rum. We'll get to this in a second. 1 ounce Aperol and 1 half ounce each of fresh blood orange juice, creme de cassis, hibiscus syrup, and lemon juice. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give it a good hard shake until it's well chilled and properly diluted, then strain into a double rocks glass over ice and enjoy. And if you're in the market for a garnish, I might recommend an expressed orange twist. A Couple things to note about this drink. First, it's a big boy. We've got five full ounces of liquid ingredients before ice and dilution, so when I say Strain it into a double rocks glass, I mean it. But the nice thing is it's not a booze bomb. It doesn't contain more alcohol than any other classic drink that you'll find on an average cocktail menu, but it really gets its legs from the complex fruit profile that it offers. So let's talk about that. Next, we need to cover the infused ingredient, the hibiscus and magnolia rum. When I read this, I was thinking it involved those weird, almost pinecone like fruits that you find on a magnolia tree during the summer and early fall. But in fact, magnolia refers to the magnolia berry, also known as the five flavor berry, which is a Chinese variant of the schisandra family. According to Wikipedia, it's called this the five flavor berry because it contains salty, sweet, sour, pungent, and bitter flavors all-in-one fruit, so you can see why it would be an intriguing ingredient for an infusion. If you're looking to source these, I'd recommend locating some dried shisandra berries online and using those for your infusion. In terms of weights, measures, and timing, Kurt recommends you infuse about a quarter ounce each of dried hibiscus and the magnolia berry seeds in about 20 ounces of rum over the course of two weeks. The key advantage here is that you get to pick your rum, so I would recommend going with something in the white or light spectrum so that the infused flavors don't have to compete with a bunch of desserty barrel notes. Like most recipes in the infused cocktail handbook, the Paint the Town Red cocktail is an opportunity to learn about ingredients you might not have worked with in the past and to really delight your guests or yourself with a cocktail that's a great deal more complex than the sum of its parts. So now that you've got an excuse to pick up some blood oranges and funky infusion ingredients, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this wide-ranging conversation with spirits expert and cocktail author Kurt Maitland, some of the topics we discuss include some notes from the early days of Kurt's spirits adventures, including a Jameson drinking college friend from Hong Kong, a bar with a Dutch name in Brooklyn, and a conference room at an architectural firm. How Kurt came to co found the Manhattan Whiskey Club, and some crucial tips for starting a spirits appreciation group in the post COVID world. Then we dive into Kurt's books, which are both intense and wonderful in their own ways. We cover how he leveraged his superpowers as a paralegal to assemble the over 1,100 cocktail recipes in his first book, Drink, and why he was then bitten by the infusion bug, which inspired the infused cocktail handbook. We also take time in this interview to discuss the current state of the bar scenes in both New York and Washington, D.C., and where things are headed as we continue to slog through what I refer to as the long tail of COVID. Along the way, we explain why people only ever follow a cocktail recipe to the letter once, the problem with the term terroir, what to drink with former President Lyndon B. Johnson, and much, much more. If you can't already tell, this was a really fun conversation for me. Kurt is a wealth of information about both spirits and cocktails, and I think you'll draw a lot of inspiration from his approach to putting large volumes of cocktail knowledge into a format that's useful useful and enjoyable for people who want to learn how to make better drinks at home. The crucial thing to keep in mind about Kurt, though, is that he doesn't do this at the exclusion of the world's best bartenders. He actively enlists them in his projects so that you and I can just sit back, crack open his books, and benefit from all that accumulated wisdom. With that, please enjoy this smooth-sipping conversation with cocktail writer, spirits expert and flavor collector, Kurt Maitland. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's kick this off as we always do by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Who are you? What do you do? And what are we gonna talk about today?
1: (laughs) It's a complicated question, but I guess I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, My name is Kurt Maitland. I am an author, I've written two books on cocktails, drink and the recently released infused cocktail handbook. I also run the Manhattan Whiskey Club and I've been writing about whiskey on the Whiskey Reviewer and Distiller for 10 years. Um, So rumor has it I know some stuff. I've also traveled to Um, explore new distilleries or just some of my favorites and as well as bars
0: yeah travel is definitely something that i would like to return to here because it seems to be an important part of your process such that it is uh the two books that we're gonna crack into here in a moment are kind of impressive both collectively and each in their own right so i'm excited to uh to Kind of dig into how you went about putting those together, especially uh, during the times that you know you were writing these things. And I guess I'd like to begin here now that we've got the overview with a little bit more of some specifics in terms of how you kind of found yourself as a whiskey writer, as a drinks traveler, as somebody who as you and I did earlier this year, someone who judges spirits. How did you kind of work your way into this world starting at the, I guess, the very beginning?
1: Well, I'd like to say it was dumb luck. Um, But, you know, that might be a bit of a stretch. There was some work involved. Um, But to start, when I went to college, I'll take us back that far, I didn't like drinking beer. For some reason, I think if if I had bothered been testing, I probably had like some kind of gluten intolerance. So I always felt like it was, I felt heavy and bloated after drinking beer. I needed something else to drink here in college. And one of my best friends uh, in school was this woman from Hong Kong, who I referenced in my first book, her name is Leslie. Leslie liked whiskey. And she grew up drinking with like ruggers, you know, know, Hong Kong rugby players. So she drank a lot of Jameson. And so I ended up drinking Jameson with her. And so I got into whiskey that way, Um, and I expanded on my whiskey knowledge. When I went to D.C., um, one of my best friends down there is a guy named Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas is also a writer. He's in charge of, he's the editor for the Whiskey Review, where I've been writing for years, and he was from Kentucky. He was from Lexington. He was near Woodford Reserve. He could smell, you know, bourbon being cooked from his house and his, where he lived. So I learned about bourbon from Rich and we would hang out and drink all the time. So then fast forward to me moving back to New York City, he moves to Portugal and he's like, I wanna start a web magazine and I need somebody in New York. You know, you can write, do you wanna um, write with me? And I'm like, sure. So I think I was like employee number one. We take Richard out because he's editor. I was the first, you know, next person added in. And for me, What I found and these things, what I learned and the methods helped me on everything else. You know, one thing to say you could write, but it's like when you go to interview these people who've been in this industry for decades, you feel overwhelmed. You know, you're coming in, you might like drinking, but you don't have anywhere near the knowledge base. Like it's been their job for as long as you've been alive, you know, this particular spirit, whatever it is. So, what i would do is i would do research i would research their old interviews and interview i'd check out articles and i'd go through and just kind of figure out like well what questions hadn't been asked or hadn't been answered that i wanted to follow up on what things had they let's say not answered but it was a while back and maybe now they could answer it um because i didn't want to bore them when i asked the question i wanted them to let's say stay engaged because i mean you know, I hate to say it, but it's true. It's like people, there are a lot of writers. There are a lot of people who write blogs, magazines, books, whatever. And these people get asked a lot of questions. So I'd like it that they remember me and they're not like, oh God, that guy's asking me questions again. I don't know if I want to deal with this person. I wanted it to be that they enjoyed it. So I tried my best to get, like, get good questions, um, work with them for answers. And that was my methodology going forward for all my writing. So that's what got me up to the first book
0: yeah yeah i i like the i like that because one of the things about me that maybe maybe listeners are aware of maybe you know long time listeners have have at this point figured out but i'll be i'll be very honest and admit it right now is that i am not on the cutting edge of anything uh i'm 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 Inherently suspicious of fast follower models for business, I'm not, like, if if you were to ask me anything about the billboard charts for any genre of music right now, I could not tell you anybody in the top 10. And so I think in that respect, asking good questions is... I think a better strategy than trying to ask timely questions or t- trying to be attached to the latest trend or on the absolute pulse. I mean, that that's certainly what I fall back on is trying to ask good questions, trying to do some of that research. So I can certainly relate to how you'd work that in uh, into your process. But before we, we get to the first book, I, I figured it might behoove us to talk about a particular bar that you mention actually in the uh, sort of end of the infused cocktail handbook. And that bar is Norman's Kill. Can you tell us a little bit about Norman's Kill and why that place is important to you? Sure. The thing is, if
1: those of you who've been to New York, you know, years ago, going to Williamsburg and Bushwick and the further parts of Brooklyn, it was a bit of a stretch, a bit of a pain in the ass. This is pre-Uber. So you're taking a cab, you're taking a random train ride, you're walking around neighborhoods you didn't know, and you're passing up going to bars that are, let's say, more convenient in Manhattan, whatever that you can get to. But it so happened that I met the owners at an event one time. Then I went out to visit them and loved the bar, loved the concept. You know, it was that they got around the problems you have at opening a business in New York. Opening a business in New York is very expensive. So they acquired a nice amount of whiskey. They had a decent amount of space. They didn't have a kitchen, but they did grilled cheese because I think grilled cheese and like heating up pizza is like the only thing that you could do without requiring like a kitchen and a food license. But they, you know, they made their grilled cheeses really cool. They had great prices. And it was almost like, I mean, for people who were living in New York or in any big city, because your apartment is small, your bars are your living room. It's like restaurants are your are your kitchen and they're where you hang out. You have people at your house, you have three or four friends. You don't have like, if you have a house like in Atlanta or you have a house in Pennsylvania where my father lives, I could have 20, 30 friends there because there's a yard, you can go out back. In New York, it's like, no, I can have who I can fit in my living room and in my kitchen. And if I wanna to speak to them at the same time, I have to stand in the hallway to kind of talk to both groups or you keep it to a smaller crew. But for norman kill norman kill was of a size whereby um you could invite 10 friends and it would be your it would for that time you were there it could be your living room with warm tasty snacks and again they had a great whiskey selection so like i loved that bar and you know it was a victim of covid i don't know i think the damage done depends on what state you're in New York's very expensive, rent's very expensive. So some of the some of the middle level bars just couldn't hold out without any revenue. Some of the bigger bars, you know, Brandy Library, Copper and Oak, Fine and Rare, um, you know, the Flatiron Room, they had enough of a cachet and enough to, to survive, you know, what happened. But a lot of the bands had, a lot of the bars did make it. And one of those bars was Norman Kill. So like you know, I put it in there and that was to kind of symbolize the bars we lost. That was one bar that I lost. It wasn't even the only one. But I think everybody, you know, reading, um, they probably have a similar situation where there was a place. It doesn't have to be a bar. It could be a restaurant. It could be a bookstore. But a lot of places went belly up during COVID. And like, you one, you have to you know, remember those bars, those places, and two, you have to support the places that are left you have to patronize them as best you can in order to keep them around for for the next person
0: yeah i definitely want to come back to uh, where we stand right now because i think we're at a really interesting inflection point in the post question mark mm-hmm. COVID landscape, um, especially as it pertains to what what's out there and what bars are doing now. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, especially from a New York perspective. Um, but one quick follow up on Norman's Kill. Were you pl- kind of playing around with whiskey at Norman's Kill around the same time as you were um, doing activities with the Manhattan whiskey club or is it the bourbon club yeah. or the whiskey club
1: whiskey club yeah i would we done so, some so of yeah i mean because people as much as it was a hall, i liked it i like patronizing it so if i could do a whiskey event there i did um but also i would go there for like i think i mentioned in the book i went there for like new year's one year and it was great um i would go there for birthdays i tell my friends okay like because i tell people that if you're in new york and trying to get your friends together for any kind of gathering it's like planning the invasion of Normandy. You're getting around like, oh, my in-laws are in town. I can't get a babysitter. Even if you tell them a month in advance, like something comes up. So I've kind of taken to like saying, okay, I'll be at this bar. I'll be here from this time to this time. If you want to swing by and buy me a drink, fine. If you want to come by and say hi, great. Like that's enough. And so I'd move the bar around each year and couple of years it was norman kill but it's like it's like i said it was a great bar and i used it because i mean the thing is with the club and because you mentioned it we can dig into it a little bit mainly i look at the club as an educational thing even though it's the manhattan whiskey club it's really you know whiskey's expensive and buying a bot, like unlike cocktails where you can buy a cocktail and just taste to see if you like it With whiskey, it's like on the low end, like a decent low end bourbon, you're talking 20, 25, 30 bucks. If you get the scotch, you're talking 50. If you're going up the the scale, you're going into hundreds of dollars. Um, For your average person just starting out and they don't know what to buy, it's an expensive proposition. So the thing about having the club for my members is that, hey, you can taste this stuff. You're not gonna like everything you taste, but you should find something you like. And then when you go to a bar, or you go to a store, you're informed enough to say, hey, I've had that brand, I've had that whiskey. I didn't like that one, but I love this one. And also for the brands, it's great because that's one of your better customers because they've tasted it, they've made the decision to spend their money. When their friends come by, which during COVID you get a lot more of that, people drinking with their friends at a smaller controlled environment, they're going to say, hey, what's that? What whiskeys do you have? what you get that's new? And they're going to say, hey, I got that. It's, I tasted it with my club. I really enjoyed it. Why don't you try it? And then that might get you another five customers from doing something like that.
0: Yeah, the reason why I asked if there was overlap between your time patronizing Norman's Kill and the Manhattan Whiskey Club is because I sort of see those two as self-reinforcing. You get to kind of be in your living room, mm-hmm. right? The bar as living room thing that you were just describing and you, you you have the ability to sample and relax in, a, in a sort of like a relaxed environment, and then you have the more formal or structured environment of the Whiskey Club where you're actually working with brand reps, as you mentioned, and you, you have just some more structure and resources around the activity. So uh, I guess, the last thing on the whiskey club, I just want to ask, like, how it was set up because I I see like uh, there's a club here in D.C. the University Club. It's a, it's a private club. They have a, a cool organization within the sort of a club within a club called the Cellar Dwellers Club, and I've worked with these folks um, on a handful of events during COVID, and I know it was very difficult for this basically um wine and spirits appreciation club within the larger organization to really do good events remotely so uh now that we're in a bit more of a position to be together in these spaces uh do you like can you just describe how the manhattan whiskey club was set up and uh maybe (laughs) uh, i guess if there are good or bad things about like certain uh ways that the club was organized sure
1: the club happened it was total happenstance I was at an bag tasting um, and I met three guys and two of the three guys were principals at an architectural firm and we just started talking about whiskey. That was it. We were just sitting together. You know, you're all trying to find a space you can sit. We just got our drinks. We start talking and, you know, they loved smoky whiskey. They loved whiskey. And I'm like, you know, I'd like to do a whiskey club. And like, Well, hey, we have a conference room. And like that was the start, because one of the big things in starting any kind of club is you want to kind of keep your expenditures low. So if I had a conference room or a space I could make use of, and then I could bring the brands in because the brands, you know, pre-COVID, their concern was always, you know, I got to do a bar buy. I got to pay a certain amount to use the bar. I got to pay a certain amount for the space. If I could reduce that, it made it more attractive to just bring four bottles, talk about your whiskeys. The people who were there, they'd like whiskey. So they're they're your customer base. They're the ones, if they like it, they'll go buy it um so it's funny because we've i've never advertised a club when i say advertising i mean me speaking about it now theoretically it's advertising it, but it was always friends of friends so it was like the people that i met they talked to some friends i talked to some friends the first gathering was like 15 people and maybe a couple of them brought like a boyfriend or girlfriend we did a Balveni tasting. After the Balveni pacing, my people went out and bought like 1400 bucks of Balveni because they liked it that much. And that doesn't happen every time, but it's like the potential. And that was when the club was small, it's a lot bigger now. Um, so fast forward to when COVID starts, like I shut down the club for I think two or three months because I couldn't gather in good faith, I didn't want to risk anybody getting sick. I had gotten COVID. Not this year, but last year. So I got a taste of it early. And I'm like, I don't want anybody else getting that. And obviously, you know, I don't want anybody, my people getting sick. And you'd have to deal with the issue of the venue, where were you going to be? Nobody was open. So that wasn't going to happen. So we moved to online, which was, you know, I'd make sample sets. I would meet people. And I usually, just to make my life easier, I had like two or three places. I'm like, okay, here, meet me by Bryant Park. And I would have sets, tasting sets made up. And I'm like, oh, here, I put names on them. And I'm like, here, here's your set. Here's your set. And we'd hop on Zoom. You know, I had to become like you're talking about not being like tech forward. I had to get more tech forward just because of the, um, just because of COVID. But it worked. I mean, people were just happy to get together. And even though they were stuck in their house, they were happy to have something to do. They could see the friends that they would only see once or twice a month. So I did that. Now that people have been vaccinated, we haven't gone back to having full size events. Part of it is, you know, I'm still concerned about the space. I'm still worried about the variants. But what I've done is because there was a point in time when I expanded where it was problematic to do the events at my original space. Like there were enough members and now people are sitting in the window wells. It's like, you know, it was a crowd. People are out in the hallway. Um, But what I've been doing is hybrid events. I've kind of capped it at, okay, 18 people to kind of give us the space you need for the event Um, and they can come in person. They have to be, you know, have proof of vaccination because I'm still in an office space. So like on top of the fact that, like, I'm keeping my people safe. Also, you know, we're the business is doing us a favor. I don't want any issues with their staff or, you know, people are still working while we're doing our thing. So I take care of that. But then everybody else is online. So the thing is, because not everybody's back in town, not everybody's in the area, but they're not back in Manhattan working. So, you know, they're in their apartments in Jersey or in Brooklyn or in Queens. Great, they have their sample sets. I get it to them and then they can log on Zoom and we can do like, we'll be live, they're on the, they're on the camera, we can all talk or chat or whatever, and we get the tastings in. And that that I found was the best thing. Now you'd asked about problems, there's no real problems. I mean, it's a lot of fun, it's just that it's a lot of work and COVID made the work more intensive because when it was just get the place, convince a brand ambassador to come, I already had glassware there, we had a dishwasher, so it was fine, you do the event, you put the dishes in the dishwasher, done. With COVID, it's like, oh, I have to make sets. I have to do drop-offs. I mean, sitting, making mini sets, you know. I remember one time I was doing it for like Mictors and we had something like eight or nine SKUs and it was a lot of people. It was hours, I was like two, three in the morning. So I'm like, I either hate myself or love my club because you know I, I wanna go to sleep, but I have to finish this. So I'm up doing it. Those have been the biggest problems. And I you know I think we're gonna keep hybrid going, going forward uh, even when I have access to bigger places because it just kind of expands the club in a way that's sustainable. Because not everybody has to physically be there. There are lots of people, you know, they have, you know, their spouse would rather them be in the house, you know, and it's like they can finish their club tasting and they're home, no big deal. They have kids, they have things they need to do, you know what I mean? So, fine, great. You can pop in for an hour and you can roll out, but you don't have to worry about, I have to commute back from the city back to your home, your home, and you can participate as you see fit. I've also been recording them um, using Zoom. So that way, if you happen to miss it, you can always drink along at a time that's convenient for you. So that way it makes it easier for a new member or somebody yes, the timing's bad, you know, to get their shot to get things in and get their tasting in.
0: I'm so glad that you were able to walk us through that because to me, there's a couple of really great takeaways that anybody who's maybe considering starting some sort of similar club can, can garner from what. You just described as your experience. I think number one is when you're starting, keep it as simple and sort of low impact as as possible. Uh, number two, I mean, like it, leveraging the technology now that everybody has been forced to adopt. I mean, I, th- I think it just makes all the sense in the world. And and as you mentioned, the benefit of that is the ability to record. Um, you know, it, it's so great to as long as you have one Zoom account, like you can download the Zoom app for your phone. And you can sit there literally with your smartphone on Wi-Fi. It doesn't cost you anything, like the 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 data. Like I has as a podcaster, I have to I I pay subscriptions for certain like transfer software and storage software, external hard drives to be able to store all these things. So there is a little bit of pay to play here. Obviously, I'm in a position to do that because it's kind of what I do. But like with the with what you're describing, Zoom takes all those questions of Tech infrastructure and data storage out of the question. So as long as you have Wi-Fi and your phone's on, you can just sit there. And then suddenly, you know, like if if we're describing a Manhattan whiskey club experience, you know, you, you're you're in there, your your face is there, present, live. And then if somebody, if your if your best friend had something going on that night. And he or she wants to tune in the next day. Well, they can, you know, you could get that text from them, you know, a day or two later, being like, hey, I really loved that note you gave on the whiskey tasting, Mm -hmm. but that solves the problem of having to be there in person or even having to be there at the same time. So uh, I agree that COVID has certainly made a lot of things much more difficult. The labor intensiveness of Everything has gone up so much and I I can relate to you on, on certain <laughs> levels uh, of that feeling of being up, up late at night or like for me, it's like being in the commercial kitchen space where we're doing our cocktail bitters and I don't want to put anybody else at risk by being in that environment. So I've had to kind of do a lot of double duty myself just to keep these things on the shelves. So um, that was super helpful and I'm really glad that we used that to lay the foundation uh, for the books. So I I think the, what I'd like to transition to is the writing of drink. And I think maybe, uh, maybe you should start us off by telling us exactly how many cocktail recipes are in that
1: book. There are 1100 cocktail recipes in that book. Um, you know, and it's, I did a lot of, I mean, I'd like to say I got to cheat a little bit. It made my life a bit easier um because i had a fairly short timeline to write it and on top of that you know it's like i i had experience with cocktails but only as a consumer. like i it's weird i wasn't a bartender um i know more about cocktails now because i've done the cocktail books i've hung out with bartenders i've made cocktails in my home COVID, you know it's like that's a that's a challenge for every business every cocktail bar is that oh people are making stuff at their homes they can make it really well, and it's actually cheaper. You know, I have to kind of entice them in with new cocktails, things that they, you know, you're happy making daiquiris. Okay, I have to introduce you to some other um, cocktails. So, it started with the publisher. This reached out to me. I was I'd been part of other of their books, like I had a chapter, or I, you know, worked on some small part. They uh, asked me if I could write a cocktail book, and I was like, my response was. I don't really write about cocktails. I write about whiskey. And they're like, their response was, we didn't ask for a whiskey book. We'd like to know if you can write a cocktail book. And I tell everybody, I'm like, I'm arrogant enough to figure if you give me enough time, I can write anything. So fine. I can write a cocktail <laughs> book. That, that's fine. So my day job is a paralegal. So I use my paralegal skills in order to get the book the way it was. Um, so I think, you know, in retrospect, what they wanted was, they wanted me to kind of like do two things an assemblage of other cocktail recipes they had in other books, plus with new content as well as intros, like just little intros about the different spirits to kind of put it all together. So, what I did first was uh, I had them send me a horde of their cocktail books. I went through with like the little plastic flags and flagged the cocktails I liked just to have a base. And you know, you're just doing basic stuff like, oh, you know, the margarita, oh, the daiquiri, oh, the Manhattan, let's just go through those. You know, and I would, because there were times when some of the recipes were different, I would decide I like this version better than that version. Um, And I try some at home or I tried them when I was out. So that was the first like part. And that got me a decent amount, like let's say half, you know, around half the recipes. they wanted me to come out with like, they wanted to have like 700 cocktails total. But um, I ended up going out and realizing that, I mean, I had to make up for my deficiencies, i.e. as a person who wasn't a professional in the space and to hopefully make the book more interesting to somebody who was, somebody who was in the industry or somebody who was experienced making cocktails, even if they they weren't a professional, a book of recipes isn't enough. So that's where you have like the intros to each type of spirit, things about ice, things about the tools you need, things about prep, party prep, so on and so forth. And also, I decided I was going to interview bars because if I reach out to bars that like either had won awards, bars I went to, bars that were really good, and just talk to them, and like the funny thing is, and this goes back to the whole asking questions, I asked them all basically the same set of questions. The questions didn't change from bar to bar for the most part. But because the bars were in different places, the answers I got were different. So like, you know, the Argentinian bars, um, they don't happen to get hordes of whiskey. So more of their cocktails are based on the spirits they did get. The Russian bar, they had different access to different fruits than we get. And so they would kind of lean into that, different fruits, with, Whis- you know, so not as much whiskey, more gin, more vodka, because those are more accessible there. Um, and then, you know, different places where, you know, they might have something like they, maybe they were doing infusions. Like that was my first step with infusions. Um, and then talking to the people, either the owners or the bartenders as to like, how were they creating these things? Like, what was, how did they get into it? What was their methodology? What did they like? What did they think the future was? And then, you know, it's great. I asked at like 20 different bars and I got 20 different sets of answers. And it kind of made the book, and they also threw in recipes, they threw in things that they liked. And it made the book for me more cohesive in that it isn't the only cocktail book. The world's surrounded with great cocktail books to get up, you know, to to, to pick up and do things with. What I thought was cool was that this one was great as a, if you had one, is covered a lot. It wasn't everything because like I made certain choices. Like I took out all the cocktails with sexy names. I took out and not because I couldn't add them, but I'm like, nobody I know who seriously drinks like, you know, the slippery nipples, their favorite, you know, or sex on a beach is their favorite cocktail. I'm like, there's enough cocktails around that I don't need them in the book. And you know, if somebody else wants that. That's fine. It's out there. And I took out any cocktail like needing open flame. Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm not looking to get sued. Somebody trying to do something fancy in the house and they burn it down. I'm like, you know what, go to a, go to a professional for that. Go to a bar where they could actually do it. You should stick to the basics and keep these. And I also preferred for the most part in the first book, three and four ingredient cocktails, because part of it is I'm lazy. Like the biggest challenge to getting into cocktails for me, it's not the cocktails don't taste good. That's not the problem. It's the time you know you walk in the apartment and you're like oh i can pop open that bottle of wine i can you know pour myself a glass of whiskey you're talking seconds it's like you know the time i take to get the glass and get the bottle i'm done if you're doing cocktails you're doing it for friends you have to do prep you're gonna make your simple syrup you're gonna go and you know you're gonna squeeze lemon squeeze lime you know get your juice together you're gonna do it fresh all that stuff nothing's wrong with it and it'll certainly impress your guests But it takes time, time you don't necessarily have. So I was always like, okay, if I can do this quick or make it easier for somebody, and also if you're doing it alone, you know, it's great if you have a guest over, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. Great. If you have a couple friends over, it's worth it to make the prep. If you're coming home alone, you know, making simple syrup isn't hard, but is it something you want to do just to do one drink? Um, that kind of stuff. But yeah, but that that's the basic methodology for that book, um, and the publisher had really pretty pictures, so it looked it looks good. You could kill a person with it. It's like almost five pounds. It's so damn heavy that uh, you know it's, it's like an offensive weapon.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is also sort of uh, how Derek Brown describes uh, a Galliano bottle mm-hmm. as a its its primary use outside of a Harvey Wallbanger is as a uh, self defense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, all right, there's two things I want to talk about about drink, I and mean, they're kind of going off in, in two different directions. The first one I want to hit is the notion of if you have just one, because by sheer numbers, 1,100 that's a lot of recipes. That's you know one a day. That's uh, that's about three years of your life if you're if you're real dedicated and you do one drink a mm-hmm. day. Uh, not stopping, no breaks, you know, this is three years of three years of work, one drink a day. It'll take you to get through this book. Now, the other thing about the book that really struck me is that it does so many things well. When I think about recommending cocktail books to people, or when I think about gifting them to somebody who I know reasonably well, and I can say, All right, maybe this person isn't somebody who would enjoy the drunken botanist where there's a focus on ingredients and science and compounds you know maybe that person is not who i would get liquid intelligence for uh, or you know one of the uh, one of the more fanciful cocktail books but you know, the death and co book or, um, you know, something by Dale de Groff, or, uh, even, you know, Southern teas, I'm just here for the drink, something that does a good job with those sort of like, here's how to make some very uh, awesome and simple drinks. Like I'm going to give them those. Whereas my, some, somebody who has a sous vide at home, you know, I I'm going to assume that they might resonate with liquid intelligence a little bit more. They might be more on the technical side with your book. Not only is the photography and and the all of the pictures in there stunning, uh, so it's it's beautiful, which is something that I can't say about all cocktail books. Uh, it is a useful technical manual as well, and just the the sheer volume of recipes. It, it's it does so many things well uh, that I see like I actually see this as a useful if you're only gonna have just one. Because I've seen a lot of cocktail books, especially coming out in the last year or two, that do cover some of that content that's out there. A lot of the recipes in your book do overlap with recipes that are sort of out there and have been out there for quite a while now. But the difference is you've got so much more than that. So it really is a Swiss army knife of a book to me. And look, one of the other cool little affordances that I wanted to point out, there's this one two-page spread near the beginning of drink where you almost have, you've got these uh, scans of these handwritten cocktail specs. <laughs> okay. And you, you know,
1: they are, I think they're mine. They're my my, very, my yeah. very first cocktail class was with Zach, who used to run Lewis 6449, four, uh, which is one of my favorite bars in the world, no longer with us, but Zach and I are still friends. In working on the book, I opened up something else and that fell out. And I'm like, okay, this has to go in. So that those are my notes, like the photographed part or the original parts, what he handed out for the cocktail classes. Those are the first classes I ever went to. And those are my handwritten notes that I figured, okay, I'd share it. Cause I've been there too, you know what I mean? Like I, I made this big ass book, but you know, I was certainly a newbie, didn't know anything about cocktails and learn from other people. Cause that's, you know, education's like the big thing with drinking beyond the drinking, the education is the important part.
0: Right. Right. Well, that kind of leads me to my next point that I wanted to make about this book. And it actually, I did not know that you were a paralegal. And to me, this makes all the sense in the world. I've spent a few years working in the marketing department with certain law firms here in DC. And in the course of that, I got to meet some paralegals and it's, fascinating to me, like you look at 1100 cocktail recipes and and you had a relatively short amount of time to put together this book. I'm sure that's where your paralegal superpowers kicked Mm -hmm. into high gear. And depending on what kind of law you're practicing, interviewing people is one of those skills. So you've got the interview content that you wove through this book, which is another yet another thing. Like some people do have guest spots in their books but usually those guest spots are like kind of the main thing of the book. I think of um, Sean Sewell up in uh, British Columbia who does a lot of great interview content and uses that to kind of fill some of his books, Great Northern Cocktails, for example, has a lot of guest spots featuring bartenders, Um, but that's kind of the primary thing. It doesn't have all of this other stuff. So it's just so impressive to me. And I think that the paralegal superpowers, (laughs) that must've been what pulled you through this, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
1: it was the way that I could take care, like, get more done quickly. So, as I said before, I went through all the books and I flagged what I wanted to do. Then I hired somebody to, I put together an Excel spreadsheet. I go, do me a favor, go through these flags. All I need to do is write down the recipe. That's not the whole recipe, just the name of the recipe, the page it's on, what's the base spirit. That's all I need. And then I finished it. Like they started it, I finished it. And then I sorted it. Because using the Excel, I'm like, oh, I can dedupe it. That's a paralegal thing. I can put it in order. I'm like, oh, these are the same. Oh, let me check the ingredients. Oh, I like this one better. So like I could put a whole mess of entries in, trim it down, and then I could just give it to my publisher and say, okay, fine. Here's the stuff I want from these books, use these. And then I, so I'm not out in a month. So then I spent the rest of the time getting my interviews together, writing the kind of like connective tissue, all of that, that was the rest of the time on the book. And I mean, I have to thank my editor, um, Buzz Poole, because I'd still be writing it. I mean, that's the thing is, it's like, I wouldn't know when to stop. It would always been one more interview, one more piece I wanted to get, one more thing I wanted to add in, one more recipe, and it would have been, you know, enormous. But yeah, to go to your point, I mean, the hope, is that, I mean, for me, I'm in my house, I have an entire shelf of cocktail books. I have at least 30 or 40. They've kind of bled into the kitchen and there's some on a separate shelf. And there's so many things, like I get old vintage cocktail books because I'm interested in like, what were they doing? What were they talking about? I also have the new stuff. I'm Dale, my first, I think my first official cocktail book was Dale's book. I ran into Dale and said, listen, you know, it's a guy interviewed Dale years ago. And I'm like, and I love your book. When I was, I remember being unemployed in like 06. I was making drinks in my house. I was making drinks with that book. Like that was the book I would go to. And for this book, like I said, I, you know, I wasn't coming at it where I had a name in the cocktail business. So I, I didn't, I wasn't like I didn't own a bar. I wasn't a famous bartender. But I just thought, what would I want in this book? So recipes are part, but you could get the recipes anywhere. But I don't think there's enough focus in a lot of these books. I mean, it's one thing if you created the recipes yourself, but if I'm compiling them, I thought it was important to get the people who actually made these drinks to talk because they don't, you know, it's like it's almost a thankless job. It's like, I mean, there's pleasure in making drinks people enjoy and you're cranking it out at your bar. You own the bar, you're one of the better bartenders. But it was nice to shine a spotlight on them because they go, it wasn't really about me. All I am is like, I'm like, I'm like the announcer, (laughs) you know what I mean? And I'm announcing what's next, but the talent, the stars, the stars were the bartenders and the stars were the drinks that they made. Um, And that kind of bled into the the next book. I mean, and that was the kind of mentality I wanted to have, because again, it's less about me, you know, the thing that's about me is probably organizational skills and questions. But as far as the meat of the book, that, that comes from the bartenders and the people who I interviewed and who spoke to me, but it also put. Something in there for every level of cocktail enthusiast. If you're starting out, you want all the recipes. If you already have cocktail books, maybe you're interested in the methodologies and definitely the interviews because, oh, you want to step up how you make cocktails. Even if you're in the business and you're a professional bartender, you don't have a problem hearing from people who are successful in the field and have made their own drinks and have their own bars. They're giving you information you could use, so I think on that, every part of that's good for somebody. You know, you might not want to carry around five pounds a book. You may have to, you know, pop the spine and <laughs> or scan the parts you want to make it a bit smaller. But you know, because um, it's really a, it's a coffee table book that you know has a lot of information. But yeah, that was the basic idea for. It.
0: I like the distinction that you just made about being sort of like the announcer. Another way that I could think about it is sometimes when I read a book like "I'm Just Here for the Drinks" by Souther or um, uh, "Spirit, Sugar, Water, Bitters" by Derek Brown, a bit more of a historical thing, I view them as the quarterback, sort of marching you down the field, and you know they're 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 sort of they're in charge of making progress through this book, but it almost sounds like you take more of like the head coach mentality where it's like, well, no, I'm going to use these players and yes, there's a quarterback. Yes. There's an offensive line. I'm going to use these and manipulate these like tools from one step further back. Mm -hmm. So we're not directly in the action. It's almost like I'm controlling the action from the sidelines or, you know, from, from above. And I, I think that's super useful. And, and the, The last thing I wanna say about this book, there's so many things I appreciate about it. Perhaps the thing I appreciate most is, as you mentioned, you didn't just take the first recipe or spec for a cocktail that you came across, you used that data-driven approach to when you've got the duplicate recipes, seeing what's different about those duplicate recipes. And, you know, we mentioned Dave Arnold earlier. That's exactly the way that Dave Arnold recommends doing recipe testing and research. When you're trying to perfect a dish is like, all right, well you got to go get a bunch of recipes, line them up all next to one another, see what they have in common, see where certain recipes will deviate from that norm, and then make decisions about how you want to deviate if at all. And as long as it's intentional, you know, if you're making a choice that's perhaps a little bit against canon, as long as it's intentional and you think it's valuable and you have a good reason for doing it, then that's great. But I think, you know, whenever I do a featured cocktail for the podcast, that's exactly what I do. I go on Punch, I go on Imbibe, I look on, you know, maybe Kindred Cocktails, some of these other sites that have lots of recipes. And then we hit the newspaper ones, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the various like food sections. And then sometimes you'll see these just crazy specs. I remember I saw a Godfather cocktail spec at one point with something absurd, like two ounces or three ounces of amaretto in it. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this can't be right. And then I did did more research and I was like, whoa, no, that's not even remotely right. right. You know, So uh, pressing on that, it makes it more of a meta-analysis. And if we're using like a sort of like a technical literature uh, approach to this, there's technical literature in law, but there's also technical literature in the sciences. And the meta-analysis, when you've got a field that has developed enough in one specific area of focus, it's really beneficial to have that sort of meta-analysis approach where somebody comes in and says, okay, what I'm gonna do is a review of all the stuff that's out there for let's say the Negroni format. You get together all of the information on this format and you say, here's what we know about the Negroni based on all these individual data points. And here are the assumptions that we can make. And so I think in that respect, the meta analysis approach to this book is what makes it such a good Swiss army knife manual. And yeah, if you can get past that coffee table size of the book, I absolutely think it's a great starter book. If you want to pick up a, a manual for somebody who has a lot of excitement, but perhaps not a lot of experience in the cocktail world. So, uh, just, I wanted to make sure I threw that out there about the recipe uh, meta analysis approach before we moved on to your next drink or your next book. Well, thank you. I
1: mean, I think that, and I look at it this way, for any book that has recipes, whether it's food or drinks, the recipe never stays the same. You, I mean, essentially what I'm laying out in either book is you're going to modify it. Like, you know, when I, you start cooking, you you have a chili recipe, you might follow the instructions exactly one time. And then once you've you've made it and you've kind of mastered it that way, you're gonna maybe you change the spices, maybe you change the type of beans, maybe you modify the meat, maybe you mix meats. You're like, oh, well, I can do ground beef and I can do ground turkey. Or hey, you know what, let's just cut up some sausage and like, or let's do some combo of steak and beef. And you know, you start messing with it because you're comfortable with it. And I think the book or both books it's like it's laying out a template but i fully expect that the people who read it to modify it for what they like they're like maybe i don't like that spirit i can modify this recipe to use something i do like or i don't for the infusions like i don't like those type of nuts so i'm gonna use another nut that i like better great do it (laughs) you
0: know what i mean yeah yeah absolutely so i mean so you've got drink this is this is a huge kind of uh just a body of work, to be honest. There was, a, yeah, I'm glad that you showed us a little bit behind the curtain as to how you executed some of that. What then made you focus on the infused, co- or maybe not infused cocktails, but at, at the very least cocktails that contain infused components? And I, I have my suspicions about why that might be, but I wanted to hear why, for you, this was the next logical thing to work on.
1: When I did, drink one of my favorite parts was the section on infusions because there is a section on infusions in there and mainly i did that and as a way to have a non-alcoholic cocktail option because you know it's like i have friends who don't drink which is weird you come to my house and there's 300 bottles of whiskey but you know it's like my thought was i didn't want it to be that i had a guest and i'm handing them water or a can of soda or some sparkling water. I'm like, oh, well, drink this. Everybody else is getting, you know, they're getting single malt and they're getting independent bottles and they're getting all these specialties. And yeah, you can drink that water and go sit in the corner. Um, My thought with infusions was here, I'll have something that doesn't have any alcohol. Um, It's not a mocktail, but it's something that takes time and tastes good. And on top of that, in the case of doing it for drink, You could modify it to work with alcohol if you wanted to. You know, you're doing a, you know, lemon blueberry infused water. Well, that could be vodka. That could be gin. You could pick one you like and do it if that's what you wanted to do. But, you know, and it it happened that I had a guest. Um, So the Whiskey Nomad, this woman named Sarah, she came to visit me in New York. And she came with a friend. Her friend didn't drink. And I knew her friend didn't drink. So I was like, I didn't want her friend to sit there while everybody's drinking whiskey and there was nothing for her. So I made two of the infusions in the book and I had it there for her to have. So like one, I think one was blueberry, lemon, and then another one might've been, it might've been grapefruit and something, or might've been mango and something, I can't remember. But it's like the infusions were so good, the people who were drinking alcohol when they were coming to take a break from drinking the whiskey they were coming in and having something infused water versus having regular water because they found it refreshing they found it tasted good with the way to clear the palate whatever and so that piqued my interest with infusions so then fast forward to I guess I started working on it in 2019 or yeah 2019 or 2018 I can't remember it kind of all blurs because covid you know the uh I'm on vacation in Ireland. i have been in Ireland for all of like two days. I get a phone call from my editor and he's like, do you know anybody who wants to write a book in infusions or do you want to do it? And I'm thinking, well, I'm already here. I'm going to visit bars. I might as well. And I liked infusions from my first book. So this one has a slightly different approach. I mean, obviously it's much smaller. The universe of cocktails, I think it's like 80 to 100. Um, and to go back to being the announcer or in your your, um, parlance, the head coach, I picked bars and bartenders and made them the focus. So, you know, it was great because when the book was done, some of the bartenders like, I didn't realize you would use this much stuff. I didn't realize you'd focus so much on me. I'm like, but I go, you're the important one. You know, I go, you're the one who's making stuff. You're the one who's getting hired to, you know, make cocktails for this bar or you own the bar. And so that um, different process, more interviews, more, I was out there tasting more stuff because as much as I had lots of stuff in um, drink, dealing with infusions and making that shift from infused waters to more infused cocktails and the interesting ways that they were being made, that kind of um, prompted a change, but also, it was intense. I had a shorter time period. Um, my editor for some reason likes to give me, you know, challenges. So it's like, okay, even though it took forever to get published because of COVID. But um, you know, I would go to these bars and watch them make it. It's like, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And I would get to see it. And it so happened. I was so I had bars in Dublin, bars in Belfast, um, bars in New Orleans, bars in Hamburg. Um, reached out to some bars I'd worked with before and bars in New York, and those aren't the only bars, but like those are the ones I kind of pulled in for this particular project. And I found it was like it was the, it was more of a master class because doing infused cocktails is like if you figure that drink was your your bachelor's degree. It got you started in the world of cocktails. You have, if you've run through those things, you've learned the techniques and the basic skills. This one is harder. This one is like, you know, the best example um, when I talked about it with the um, Adam, Adam Sachs, who wrote the uh, intro, and because he's a cooking guy and we went to school together. And we're old friends. I go, it's like Thanksgiving dinner. Nobody makes Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday morning you start making Thanksgiving dinner on Tuesday night. You know, you're know you gonna prep certain things on Tuesday night. You're gonna prep certain things on Wednesday. You're gonna finish it off and cook them and do whatever on Thursday. So you can eat them on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And yet look at infusions that way. There are things where like, you're infusing things for three days. And it's an extra step, but you get to make something that's extra original, um, that's extra unique. Because you can't just go buy the infusion you're making the infusion and all the tweaks you want to do the changes in percentage and amount and how you use it that's all up to you and you're going to modify it the way you see fit to get the drink that you want and that I thought was the important part for whoever was going to get it.
0: yeah it, it just seems like pressing on or double clicking on that notion that you mentioned earlier of, this, of like yeah you'll 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 follow the directions exactly once. Mm -hmm. After that, it's time to start manipulating different variables. And so uh, I I also like the comparison of the bachelor's and master's degree in that, yeah, uh, you know what, when you're getting your bachelor's degree, you, you might focus on one or two of the main variables, like balance, right, the taste of a cocktail acid versus sugar versus booze. Like that's a, that's like what you want to focus on when you're first getting started. But then, you know, you start talking about things like mouthfeel. If you leave that black tea in that vodka for three days, why is it going to taste like sawdust? You know, like these are important factors to now get a little bit more deep into. And I love, you know, I get pitched a ton of books that take a topic, whether it's a spirit, whether it's a concept like non-alcoholic cocktails, whether it's a like grow an herb garden and make cocktails out of your herb garden type thing, Some somebody who has a conceit. In, in the case of this book, obviously the conceit is everything is somehow infused. But usually what happens with those books is I'm like, great. Like you're giving me a bunch of recipes, but you're not really teaching me anything. This book, like this book is essentially for people who are afraid to do anything without a recipe in front of them. People who are afraid of breaking something. And one of the things that I like to talk about cocktails with people, I don't know if that made sense <laughs> one of the one of the things one of the things i one of the ways i like to describe cocktails to people is that they're like children it's like are children Delicate, yes, they're not quite fully formed adults. And yet, if a kid falls and like scrapes their knee, it's not the end of the world. They're incredibly robust, they'll bounce back even if there's initially tears. So you shouldn't worry about breaking your cocktails. They're incredibly robust things. As long as you can maintain some semblance of balance, it's going to be palatable. Um, But like anybody who truly gets into cocktails, Necessarily develops that anti-fragile palate approach, where they're more interested in getting to the point where they can break a cocktail than they are with playing it safe and making sure, like, oh, okay, uh, d- does does the recipe, you know, say to add, you know, like this much or this much, and you know, th- it becomes less of a concern over time. And what I like about the Infused Cocktail Handbook is that, especially with the in-depth interviews that you conducted with these subject matter expert bartenders. And all of the other sort of deeper dives that you do on certain ingredients, it doesn't have that approach where it's just like, oh, well, okay, you have an idea, you have a concept. Like this is a concept book where you just put together 30 cocktails around a concept. It's like, congratulations. You've successfully done variations on a theme, but I haven't learned anything as a reader. And so, I, I, I what I appreciate about the Infused Cocktail Handbook as a sequel to Drink is the fact that it goes out of its way to make sure it adds value not only in the recipe section, but also in terms of like the you know getting these subject matter experts to weigh in on their processes and their hacks that make them so successful at scale and at a professional level. I think that's super valuable for home bartenders, even though a lot of books specifically written for at-home bartenders tend to skip it. And I think that's a missed opportunity that, uh, that you definitely hit on.
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, I, uh, it's funny cause I mean, I think about the stuff with infusions and working on them, like some of them are ridiculously simple, like so simple. I was surprised. I never thought of it. Other ones are way harder, um, uh, like cooking, you know? you know making a roast is different than making chili then it's different than making lasagna then it's different than you know' like making a three-tier layer cake. It's like they're all kind of things you have to do and ways you have to play. and um, but I enjoyed doing it and I loved the cocktails and I even started you know messing around some stuff at home but just like modifying it because I'll give you an example. It's like one of the um cocktails I loved was like, the salted, I think it was a salted Manhattan. Which um, there's guys in a, in a place called the Drip Bar, which is in Hamburg, and two of my favorites. I mean, I love all the cocktails, and everybody who helped with the book was amazing. And you know, I've gotten to thank some of them in person. Other ones, you know, I've been able to I've been able to get back to Hamburg since COVID started. Um, but the Drip Bar, there, what they did was and it was really smart. They used very large drip coffee carafes to do their infusions. So they were able to do a simple oil and fat wash for their salted Manhattan. It's like, oh, just take the filter part of the carafe, fill it up with salted peanuts, drip whiskey over that. The whiskey will strip the oil and the salt off the nuts. What collects in the bottom is the core of what you're going to use for your salt in Manhattan and when I said about modifying it I mean so imagine you're a person you don't want to use salted peanuts maybe you want to use almonds maybe you want to use macadamia nuts maybe you want to use those really oily nuts that they have at like Whole Foods I can't remember what they're called but they're like they look like almonds but they're like and they may be a variant of almond but they're like really oily really salty it's like nothing Mm -hmm. stops you from using that as what you do the fat wash with it's like once you learn I like that it's broken down where it has the infusion separate from the cocktail, because you could use the infusion. You could make that infusion and do something else with it. You're like, oh, I'm going to make a batch of this infusion. I'm going to try it with these three drinks and these three spirits. Let's see how it works. And you might find you like one better. And that's the thing. The, the methodology for the salt Manhattan, you could use rum instead of whiskey if you wanted to and do something with it. And I think that flexibility, I think for all this stuff, flexibility is important. And I wanted it to be, I didn't want it to be one note and nothing's wrong with one note, but I thought like you're buying a book, um, you should get more than one thing out of it. So like for me, in both cases, recipes aren't enough. You know, it's like recipes plus methodology plus, you know, interviews, so on and so forth. That would be a good mix to go with.
0: Yeah. Uh, I like that. I'm going to write that down. Recipes aren't enough. I think that is, uh, (laughs) I think that's the title of this episode. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by near country provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like, you live in the mid Atlantic, you enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals and you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages, and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's Barcart, B-A-R-C-A-R-T at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal. And I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now back to the show. This has been a lot of fun. The last thing I want to hit on before we jump into lightning round here is, uh, you know, I'm in D.C. I'm noticing certain things about the bar scene here and some of the trends over the last couple months as we are in sort of the long tail of COVID. It's still with us. There are still certain realities. Uh, And on the other hand, there has been a decent amount of turnover in terms of real estate, in terms of the places that are set up to be bars already. Some of those are now beginning to be filled again. There's been some uh, some new openings here. So I'm curious to get your take on A, what's happening in New York right now, and do you have any uh, predictions for how things are going to look as we enter into 2022 because we're sort of already circling the drain that is the holidays uh right. and you know like m- not much interesting like dynamic bar stuff is going to happen you know uh until maybe 2022 at this rate in terms of like the new development so what do you, what are your thoughts both now and in the future what i think at present is that new york right
1: now it's like it's I want to say it's finding itself. It's like, what ended up happening with COVID, and I don't, I mean, New York has a unique situation, not unique to other, unique to other cities in that, you know, the middle of the city isn't really frequented by people who live in the city. So like, you know, a lot of cities, it's like, well, this is the core of the city, you're in the core of Chicago, you know. In New York, it's like, well, Broadway, the businesses that are there, and tourists, drive what goes on there but people who are native to the city it's like no they're going to bars below midtown they're going to bars in the village they're going to bars in the lower east or lower west or even down on wall street or they're going up to restaurants along the park where there are neighborhoods because like that's what kept people going it's like oh if you were a neighborhood bar a neighborhood restaurant people didn't want to go that far they would patronize the places that were close to them that would make sense but for midtown there was you know all the little things that kind of made it work went away with broadway closed, there was nobody getting like after show drinks they weren't getting pre-show drinks they weren't getting dinner with the hotels closed and no tourists you know nobody was hanging around to do stuff and you didn't have business travel where oh they're gonna get a hotel room near the office so they can duck in a place to get food they can do a business meeting whatever all that was gone so I had people telling me, Oh, it looks like New York is dead. I'm like, no, Midtown is dead. Because the other parts of the city, like if you hung out, if you went to the West Village or you went someplace else, it was hopping. People were out, people were drinking, you know, they were having a good time. The weather was good. They had the outside spaces that they could enjoy. Um, so I think there's gonna be a reset as to what's gonna be in um Manhattan. And I think I mean, when I say Manhattan, I mean Midtown um because there's a lot of opportunity out there because you think of all the bars that kind of closed down went belly up they're all prepped to go back into business it's like the people left the bar but like the bar was set up as a bar you don't have to come in and do a total rebuild you don't have to do a gut you could come in there paint it do some design work and put the things you want in that bar you have a bar you could legit have a bar up and running in six months you know and i kind of think that what you're gonna see, and it's gonna be affected by how businesses handle bringing staff back, or you know, because where I am, it's hybrid. Um, you know, a couple days in a week, but if that's enough and you have tourists, I think you'll have people looking to open up bars, um, and a bars with a mix of inside outside. I don't think anybody wants to get caught with their pants down in regards to like. Because I had somebody talk to me about this once and they were complaining about like, well, how come the bars in California were open before the bars in New York? And I'm like, the difference is in California, you have space. I knew places- And it where, doesn't I, rain. <laughs> right. I mean, I went out there and it's like, there was. I was at a Mexican restaurant. Well, the Mexican restaurant had a parking lot. They could turn the parking lot into a b- pavilion. They could have outdoor space to keep their workers safe. Nobody had to go inside of the facility other than to go to the bathroom workers are in there by themselves and everybody ate outside and you could do it because you could put fans, you could give them cover. New York, it's like, no, New York's bars are small and intimate and dark. There's no flowing air. If there is this AC, none of that helps you for COVID, you know. So I think that a lot of places are going to look and see like, you are going to want a roof deck. You're going to want to be able to open up the front to kind of air it out. You're going to want access to the like putting some stuff on the street or the sidewalk to kind of expand the footprint of your bar. And if something happens that there's another lockdown or even a modified lockdown, you can still provide service outside. You can still have half of your customers, you, you know, and because you have the expanded range. So basically, if there's no lockdown, the footprint of your bar is bigger. You can serve more people. If there is something, you still have some part of your thing. You can do some customer service you can do um, some, you know, you can do business and everybody was doing the delivery of cocktails. um, And that's always always something they can pull out of their quiver again. Um, But I don't think we'll get a good idea of the lay of the land in New York in regards to Midtown, which is the big problem until next year, because I would imagine that if I was buying now, because the landlords are like, the landlords are giving ridiculous rates. They're all taking a haircut. It's their own fault. They pushed out the old tenants with rent increases or with rent demands. So now they're trying to get somebody back in. I'm like, well, you could've just cut a deal with the person who was there, but whatever. Um, I imagine what's gonna happen is if you haven't opened a bar now, you're gonna spend the winter prepping that bar with a nice grand opening in the spring. Where, cause you can feel out like what's up with Broadway, what's up with Midtown, and you can temper your expectations that way. Um, But it's just like it's New York and it's too valuable to pass up getting yourself now, even if it means, you you know, it's a it's a money. It's a loser for the first year. You look at it where. Hey, um, you know, two years from now in a prime spot in Midtown, Um, you know, and there's some stuff you can't predict, but I imagine that, you know, enough stuff will come back. That it'll get that draw, it'll get the, and if it's good enough, as much as I tend not to hang out in Midtown, if it's good enough, you know, you'll get the residents to come. It's not like we don't go into stuff in the city, it's just like, you know, it's like I need a reason, and so give me the reason, (laughs) you know.
0: Precisely, precisely. That was awesome. Uh, I agree with so much of that. Uh, Obviously, DC is a different animal than New York. We don't have Broadway, our downtown or central business district. Is set up vastly different than New York's. But I think a lot of the principles, especially with timing, hold true. I think next year is definitely going to be a much bigger year for bar openings. I think people are just sort of like, again, trying to ride out this long tail of COVID. Uh, but what you said, I, it made me think you know, there is this hanging question. If you're correct, and I, I think you are is this almost like the swan song of the classic New York bar that you described as sort of dark and intimate and close? Like, do you, do you see, like, do you see that remaining or like are we sort of did, did, was everybody burned so much by COVID that if you're going to open a bar in Manhattan or Brooklyn, you almost need to go into that venture with the pandemic fallback plan solidly in hand. Like, does that signal the swan song of the classic New York dark bar? Well, I mean,
1: I would hope not. I'm a big fan of those bars. Um, I think what will happen is like the bars that are like that, that are the space is physically owned by the bar owner versus a landlord. They'll probably keep it open. So places like kettle of fish, which I've been at for years, they own the space so i don't think they you know there's no landlord to give them a push um i think if you're doing a new bar concept especially in new york where you know the issue of will they won't they give me street access you're thinking maybe some kind of like roof deck or patio where you could if you had to you could shut down the interior have people go up the steps and they're outside and therefore it's like i can still have the space so it's like it's extra space what used to be something you only had for private parties now it's like due to covid that's our primary space and we use downstairs for prep which i've seen people do they like where they're like we've moved as much as we can outside as far as for the consumer for the customer inside we're just using it for prep we've expanded it. the place we used to sit now it's like it's a prep station for you know for your cocktails or a prep station for your food we're just using that space in a different sort of way um mm. but yeah i think that there'll be less new concepts that kind of cater or are that old New York bar feel. Um, I think they'll only do it where they can reasonably pull it off or make it a like build a speakeasy into a bigger bar and let the Mm -hmm. speakeasy be the old New York concept, the old bar concept, you know, put something in the basement while you're able to use it, let that be the old dark New York bar. Upstairs will be something maybe airier, a little bit more COVID, uh, a little bit able, able to resist COVID if, if anything happens again.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it does, does certainly seem like a shakeup is still going to continue occurring. We've seen some changes here, and I think we're um, still going to be seeing some changes in the years to come. So uh, I got to say, Kurt, this was a lot of fun for me. I learned a lot by um, speaking to you about the two books that you've put together and just your... Unique take on bars, being somebody who traveled to quite a few of them abroad, and you know you're just right in the heart of it in New York City. Uh, So for folks, folks like me, it's uh, you know there's a little bit of jealousy going on in terms of the bar access that you have. But uh, I'm really glad that you were able to share some of those insights with our listeners. Uh, We'll tell folks how to get a hold of your books right at the end of the episode. But do you have anything that you wanted to uh, to add before we jump into the lightning round real quick?
1: Not really. I mean, other than the fact that I used to live in DC, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And like DC, it's all other than the main drag. So like you know, certain avenues like the avenue, like in Georgetown or you know downtown, most things are in neighborhoods. Like I lived in you know I lived on Capitol Hill, and like stuff on there's stuff on Pennsylvania Ave. There were bars I used to go to. You know that that you know those were the bars. Um, there were a few bars downtown, but not to the level where. Your average person hung out. It was more like the politicians and the diplomats. Those were their bars and their restaurants. The stuff in the neighborhoods, those were your bars. That's where you hung out.
0: Right. You know. Right. Uh, well, uh, hopefully, if you make it down here, if I make it up to New York, we can uh, we can share a drink here or there in person, and uh, we can actually uh, see firsthand uh, what what folks are doing. Uh, so I definitely look forward. I to would that. love to.
1: I haven't been in D.C. in a little bit. I know I used to go once a year, and then COVID put the
0: kibosh on that. So I'm thinking. Yeah. This year or next, I will make it down. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I'd love to love to show you a couple spots that I like, but uh, for now, let's jump into the lightning round. First question: What's your favorite cocktail? And this is uh, somebody who's put together over 1,100 plus a couple a couple other dozens with the uh, the infused cocktail book. Uh, so, it, if you can't name the favorite of all time, what's something that maybe more recently you've been obsessed with?
1: Well, no. Right now, there's no favorite for, for all the things you stated. But um, I've been a fan of daiquiris, which I didn't used to like. And now I do. And it, you know, my friend, as I mentioned, um, Zach Jiraga, um, the guy who owned Louis 649, he was like, the daiquiri is a good test of what the bartender can do. It's your good intro. Like, you come in because here's the deal. And I've heard more than one bartender say this when I talk to them. It's like you come into a restaurant you've never been to. You order, you look at their menu, whatever. You order a daiquiri. And, you know, there's times I've gotten pushback. Like I asked for daiquiri and they're like, someone's like, it's not the bartender, but the person taking the order. They're like, oh, we don't have, we don't do frozen daiquiris. I'm like, I didn't ask for a frozen daiquiri, I asked for a daiquiri. they go tell your bartender that I'd like a daiquiri, see if they can make it. Now, obviously, if they can't make it, we got a problem because if you can't make a daiquiri, you probably shouldn't be a bartender, but like not like <laughs> not being paid to do your stuff because that's a, one of the basics. It's like if you can't make a Manhattan, if you can't make it a Negroni, like there's the things you need to be able to make. But the thing is, is that with a daiquiri, it's a real simple drink, but it's easy to mess up. The m- usual mistake is that it's too sweet. And that's the mistake of a lot of cocktails. Like people lean on sugar way too hard and sugar will blot out other stuff like you need the right balance like that one's one of balance ingredients are simple but you don't want too much of anything to make a good one if they can do that then i'm like oh now i want to see what else they can make now i look at their menus like what's what are the things that they created that i want to taste so the the right now
0: the long and short of it is daiquiri it's the old indicator drink as i like to call it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Totally. All right, next question. What is a seemingly small or uh, just like a, a little quirky occurrence that always makes your day? And for me, one of my examples is whenever I see an older person walking around with those like hiking sticks, mm-hmm. and the reason why it always warms my heart and makes my day is that I feel like the adoption of these slightly cooler and more athletic-y looking like sort of walking sticks has almost destigmatized people who have mobility issues. And so now instead of walking around with a walker or a cane, they feel empowered to like use these, yeah, like I'm going for a hike and they've got their their sticks so that they're doing it safely and they're able to exercise. And I'm just like, what a beautiful unintended side effect of these hiking stick manufacturers that they've suddenly destigmatized exercise for people with mobility issues. And I'm just like, you crush it. Whenever I see somebody like that, I'm like, yeah, go get it. So do you have anything that makes you feel in any way, just special, something small and unique to you?
1: Let's see. I mean, I think, you know, I live in the Bronx. Like, I mean, I live in Manhattan. I work in Manhattan. I live in the Bronx. My apartment's in the Bronx. And so it's been interesting to see, or I've loved the re-engagement of people outside now. So like in this neighborhood, people would be out and they would uh, play dominoes on the sidewalk. They would just sit there with their friends and do it. When COVID happened, that kind of calmed down. People weren't out. It's like now that's kind of come back. It's like, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, the leaves falling, you know, it's the reverse of the leaves falling when it's winter. It's like the guys playing dominoes, and it's not always guys, the people playing dominoes, you know, that because they feel more comfortable, they're back outside. And they'll be outside till it gets too cold for them to be outside. and they'll be inside doing it or whatever. But like, it's almost like they've hit a certain point with what's been going on where they feel like, yeah, you know, I'm out with my friends. We're good. We're going to do what we used to do. And it's like, you know, it's nice to see.
0: Yeah. Talking about indicator cocktails, that's like an indicator mm-hmm. species. You know, that an environment is healthy when you see the, you know, the sort of the predator, like the blue hair, if you see a blue heron fishing, you know, that that's a healthy, right. you know, river or pond environment. It's kind of like when you see the folks that are out there, it's like, ah, yeah. okay things are as they should be yeah. so that's a that's fantastic uh cocktail with anybody in the world past or present who would it be where would you go what would you drink just paint us a picture
1: all right um thinking because that one a lot of people i'd like to meet a lot of people i'd like to talk to you know you have musicians some politicians somebody famous um hmm, it might be strangely because you're in dc uh LBJ, and okay. because one LBJ liked to drink, to his concept of politics, like he was definitely the master of like legislation. So he'd be an interesting guy to talk to as far as like what he would think about how things are now and how to compare to what he was dealing with when he was there. And I'm sure the personal change, you know what I mean? It's like I'd love to let's say do it with Bourdain, but I've actually had. I've met him once and had drinks with him once. Nothing major, but it was great for that time. And that's a person I would have loved to talk to, especially because the whole thing of traveling and drinking always worked out. Um, Mm. You know, but like I said, I've already met him once for all of 10, 15 minutes, whereas never got to meet LBJ. LBJ was, you know, deceased close to when I was a baby or, you know, maybe even before then. So I'd be curious to have that conversation with him.
0: Mm. Uh, would you do it in New York, in DC, any, like any, any uh, ambiance that you would set for that conversation about, uh, legislation comparisons between past and present? I would
1: probably do it in his home turf of Texas. Okay. Because you know, it's like, that's where he's from. That's, you know, this place called Johnson city, probably get a, a drink in Johnson city, which is named after him. Um, and then talk shop mm-hmm. to see what he had to say. I'll be kind of curious.
0: Uh, Hot take that's not on the questions list. Texas whiskey, hot, cold, lukewarm. Where do you stand?
1: I mean, I think it's, I'd say it's hot. Um, And it's funny you asked me that. I was in Texas three or four weeks ago and I got to go to a bunch of distilleries around Austin. And I was actually impressed with the whiskeys as well as what else they're doing. I mean, I've always liked Balcones. Balcones is always gonna make it on my list. I'm learning more about Garrison. There's stuff I hadn't had like Treaty Oak, which is really good. And like, I was like, all right, there's a lot of potential here for these whiskeys. I mean, the problem they have that everybody has is getting people to pay attention to them, to get get out from behind the standard bourbons everybody goes to and nothing's wrong with them. But like, you know, you need a difference. You need to like, people need to be more inventive and explore more. And that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I think if people reach out and explore more and get a chance to taste this stuff, um, Milam and Green, like their stuff was really good. Like I was, it was really a good surprise. So I think Texas, I mean, it may not be hot, maybe between hot and lukewarm. I think it's warmer than lukewarm. It's not blazing hot. So I don't know what the proper, you know, I don't know what the proper terminology would be, but I think it's like, it's on the come up.
0: I would agree with that entirely. I was going to say I like where you're putting the temperature currently, but I think it's trending upward. Like if I if I had to invest in whiskey from a certain state and I knew that I was going to leave that investment to sit for like 5 to 10 years, like if this were like a traditional like stock investing kind of motif, I would probably put a a good chunk of money on Texas as being a a real growth category. So I had to slip that in there since I know that you are uh, all things whiskey. Kurt, the last question I have for you, and I have a feeling you you probably have an answer for this, is uh, do you have any controversial views or beliefs in the spirits and cocktail world?
1: I mean, I'd say, and it goes back to whiskey, because as much as I've been doing cocktails, you know, whiskey's... I don't want to say it's my baby, because, you know, conveniently, having written cocktail books, I kind of have a much more expansive view experience. Um, but I would say this, because right now, the, one of the raging issues is terroir in whiskey. And I've kind of of the opinion that there is a terroir, but not from the grain. It doesn't tie. It's not a linear thing to the way it is with wine. I think it's more like terroir of place. And the way I would rationalize that is that, okay, you think about it, like all the big manufacturers um, source their grain from multiple parts of the world to get their barley, but it still tastes like their product. Well, it's not the grain because it's not the same grain. It could be something to do with the water because assuming your water source remains the same, but it's like, maybe it's their washbacks and mash tuns and the still, the copper they use. And... The methodology that gives you that sense of that distillery, whereas somebody could take the exact same grain, the same barley, you know, and they make it. It taste different, and I think it tastes different because while well, they're using a different still, they're you know, you know, there's local bacteria, all those things. I think that can affect how something tastes. But you know, my issue with the um, and it's the issue is mainly that some people can actually source all their barley from a set place. So, yeah, fine. You can claim a terroir because all your barley is coming from one place. But obviously that doesn't happen with a bunch of your big distilleries and they still get the whiskey to taste the same. Um, Even if you go to like something like bourbon, it's like where they get their corn from changes. But from year to year, for the most part, something like Maker's Mark or Jack, they taste the same. And it's really like, okay, maybe it's process. It's process and equipment and how we're using it. You know, That's what gives us that taste. And you know, I mean, I, th- I think the association with it, I mean, it's almost like we need a new word. You think terroir, it's like you think wine. It's like, it doesn't work like wine terroir. So I think maybe there should be some other word that encompasses this, that takes care of the argument and settles it. The so yeah, that's my random opinion.
0: That's that's really interesting, and I'm very sympathetic to it. I sometimes refer to that idea or maybe that set of ideas as almost cultural terroir mm-hmm. in that it's like, you know, there's a, all these decisions that you need to make. And, you know, ultimately, even if we, you know, you were just describing a whiskey that can claim a terroir, like a single malt style thing where <laughs> they're sourcing all their grain from the same place. Well, it's like, okay, great. Well, give me two whiskeys that source all of all of their grain both of their grains from the same place those two whiskeys are still going to taste different so mm-hmm. if we've taken the grain out of the question as the variable then the question remains what other variables are still at play and i think a lot of those have to do with like you said equipment and process but i think you know like to the extent that some of those things like fermentation time, fermentation temperature, stuff like that, those are more cultural. They're more unique. It's almost like, you know, uh, I've been getting really into the idea of cassoulet recipes from uh, Mm -hmm. the Gascony region in France. and It's like everybody has their way of doing it. Yes, it's the same dish, but it's different at every house you go to on a given street. So uh, I think cultural terroir is interesting and I would also be interesting. Definitely keep me posted. If you can think of a better way Way to approach that instead of modifying terroir with an adjective, maybe if there's a different right. word altogether, I would be very curious to uh think about that a little bit more deeply. So maybe that's an article you and I collaborate on.
1: I'd be happy to do that because I have, you know, it's like I, I need to write more. It's like weird. I don't have writer's block, but it's like, you know, it's like I've been writing less. You know, I don't know why. You know, I think it's after the books, I'm like. I'm working on my next book. So it's more like ideas and sketches yeah, versus like I'm full blown into a new big project.
0: So. Yeah, you're in that pre-writing phase, which I think is a place where a lot of good ideas can leak out. But uh, speaking of writing and books, how can people get their hands on drink and the infused cocktail handbook? Any place you want to point them in particular?
1: Well, I mean, they can definitely
0: hit up the, let me think about this now well the publisher's one but it's on
1: amazon it can be found at target um it can be found at most places good books are sold quote unquote uh you can have them do a special order if it's not at one of the places you know it's at barnes and noble it is weird walking in and seeing my book there um in these places i'm like oh yeah you know because i've always loved books so it's just funny that like oh i became an author on the fly i didn't I don't know, but it has happened but yeah, so as far as the books go, I'd say, yeah, the, all the normal suspects, it, I think it's even at Costco and Walmart, and it'll make a good Christmas and Thanksgiving gifts, so start shopping early.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I really do mean everything that I've said about these books. I think they're super useful for not only the novice who has maybe a lack of experience, that would be sort of like who I would recommend for drink, but also the people who are a little bit more adventurous and uh, people who maybe have a, a spice rack or a pantry that is overflowing with the uh, weird and strange ingredients. That might be the person that you give the infused cocktail handbook too. Uh, So Kurt, I know that we uh, were maybe discussing the possibility of having you hack some of our uh, featured cocktails uh, as we head into the holidays with some maybe some featured recipes. So folks can hopefully be on the lookout for your smooth, silky voice gracing our podcast (laughs) waves again. But uh, for now, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time and being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast.
1: Um, It was an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to getting to D.C. and grabbing drinks with you in person. Cheers. Cheers. Hey,
0: everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, spirits and infused cocktail wisdom courtesy of Kurt Maitland, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.